well, I was really tickled to get, uh, I just opened up my little package sitting there, and uh, mine has a picture of a lake. It's called White Rock, White Rock Lake, and I live, I can throw a rock at that lake if I want to. So, uh, and I'm tickled also uh, because it fits a part of the theme that I want to kind of convey today. Um, I'm a person, I'm the son of my father and my mother, and my father loved ideas, and I'm an identical twin, to uh, have a, a brother, and my father loved to talk about ideas, and so when we sat at the, at the dinner table, we talked about ideas. Um, my mother was a, a woman of deep values and emotion, and so for her it was family and food and warmth, that sort of thing. And so the truth is uh, both of those things are important to me. Now, I, I made a, st a strategic decision uh, a few months ago. It, lately, when I do presentations, I've gotten out of the habit of using PowerPoint. Um, and so um, I found for myself that the tail started wagging the dog. And instead of the PowerPoint serving me, I was serving the PowerPoint. Uh, now, what's also true, I'm feeling a little bit of panic right at this moment <laughs> because this is the presentation. And so uh, I'm, I'm going to try to pull out all my tricks uh, to keep you invested and interested in this. Um, but the truth is, uh, I've got some really great ideas, right? Because my dad taught me to really love ideas. And I, but I also have some personal information that I want to convey. You know, um, the prepared environment is also a prepared person, isn't it? We have to be prepared because learning occurs in a relational environment, you know. And so I'm going to uh, share some stories and I'm going to share some things that are meaningful. Implicit in everything I've heard over the last week has been meaning. But um, I'm going to make it a little bit more explicit today. I'm going to read some stories. I could get a little the clump at points as I'm reading some of these stories because they're about people that I care about and I know. Um, so anyway, that's the plan uh, at this point. Um, let's start with a, a quote. Again, I love quotes. And uh, this was one of the things, actually, uh, that I'm an I'm a introvert. Um, <laughs> Uh, and as such, I've been like a hen sitting on a clutch of eggs for the last week, you know, thinking about this presentation. You know, just kind of uh, hunkered down. And, uh, and on several occasions, people have uh, kind of reached out and said, are you okay? Because I can tell I'm, I'm, I'm deep within, you know, kind of trying to sort all this stuff out and getting, and I, I have to kind of... Uh, I store energy 
I collect it from you guys. <laughs> and then I expend it. And so you may be even seeing me being a little bit more animated than you've seen me in the past, you know, except for yesterday uh, when I had a chance to really get to know a little girl. Um, so anyway, here is the, uh, the reason this quote is, was a, it was an initial chance for me to start getting a little bit more relaxed and to feel a connection. Uh, it's a quote by a guy named John McMurray and Alan, uh, is actually familiar with this person, and nobody I know is familiar with John McMurray. But you know, I'd read, uh, I, uh, I'll share another little secret, um, both on the website and now that I've got a hard copy, um, I have been looking at everybody's profile, the who's who. I looked at all of them. <laughs> and not only that, but um, you can look through here and you see that I put check marks when I have a chance to have a conversation with you. And I go back over it because it begins to make more sense to me once I meet the person, you know. Um, so anyway, uh, this, uh, one of the connections I made was with Alan. And I'd read his who's who and I thought, huh, Cambridge, UK, he might know about John McMurray. And he studied some philosophy and some, uh, some of the things he's interested in are our, our personhood, and I knew that was a big thing with McMurray. So sure enough, he, uh, he was familiar, and that was, that was a nice connection for me. So here's the quote. All meaningful knowledge is for the sake of action, and all meaningful action for the sake of friendship. All meaningful knowledge is for the sake of action, and all meaningful action for the sake of friendship. Now, I think that fits with Montessori and for a variety of reasons. Uh, as a parent, one of the things I loved about the whole idea of a Montessori classroom was that there was a chance for a community to develop. That was important for me, that my kids be part of a community. Um, and so not only would they be learning all sorts of great things but it would be in the context of personal relationships and they would have a chance to learn what it means to be a real person in community, in friendship for McMurray this idea of friendship is a big word it's not just palling around but he actually believed and hoped, much like Maria Montessori, that it was possible for the whole world to have some unity and to have a kind of friendship that would be very profound. Um, so, I love that quote. I think it's a good way to start. Um, of course, I'm delighted to be here in South Africa. I never, ever thought I'd ever utter those words in my life. Um, and I'm here to report and share uh, our perspectives and ideas at Lumen and specifically at Lumen Bachman Lake Community School. Uh, and I think uh, I want to make sure you understand that these are just kind of things that are important to us. These are 
these are ways of applying these ideas that are important to us. And I trust you to kind of sort through and decide whether it's, you know, whether they fit your context, that sort of thing. I'm here, I'm glad to report that a lot of really neat things are happening at Lumen Bogman Lake Community School with the children, with the parents, with the families, and with the staff. Uh, I will say this, I want to confess something, that when I thought about coming here, and I've heard this from several people, and that's helped me feel more comfortable, that I, I felt like I might be a bit of an outlier, you know, because I don't have any formal training in Montessori whatsoever. Um, and so I thought, well, maybe, maybe there's a secret handshake that I don't know. Um, uh, but a couple of things happened that helped me uh, move away from that. One is uh, the warmth and the respect that I felt from every person I met. Uh, I kind of think maybe with Lynn, you know, Mary Carolyn Parker is the uh, executive director of Mon uh, Montessori Institute of North Texas. She's a person that I met years and years ago. We're friends and colleagues. Um, she, uh, she said, you know, I've got this idea, Stan, and again, it's not my decision, there's a committee and et cetera, but I'm kind of, I'm, I'm wanting to propose your name to come, you know, to join the assembly. I have no idea whether that will happen or not, because it's not my call, but would you be open to it? And I say, yes, that would be great. I would really look forward to that. Um, and I kind of think that maybe uh, there's been, <laughs> Lynn has been so warm and kind that I thought, I bet Mary Carolyn's probably called and said, you take care of Stan for me, you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> but uh, the warmth has been uh, palpable. Uh, the respect has been, uh, uh, I, I've really sensed it. And I want us to remember that word, respect, because it's going to come into some things we talked about a little bit later. But the other thing that happened that really helped me kind of feel uh, like, um, you know, this whole thing of the secret handshake. <laughs> I walked in, and even though I'm not using this table, I saw this table. And it's kind of, oh. And see, at Montessori Institute of North Texas, I've sat at a table just like that many times to speak to the candidates uh, who are being trained. Uh, Mary Carolyn invites me to come in and, and talk to the, uh, uh, to the students. And so I thought, oh, maybe I know the secret handshake. I'm familiar with this, you know, this is something I know. So anyway, Okay, so I'm not an expert in Montessori, although I will say that I've read uh, several of Paula Pope Lillard's books, so that means I know something. Um, the best description of me is that I'm an ardent fan and supporter. I'm a father of two daughters who received fine Montessori education. I'm the grandfather of three granddaughters who are receiving fine Montessori educations. Uh, I've been involved as a parent. Uh, 
I've been a consultant to Montessori schools for the last uh, 25 years. Uh, I'm a therapist who's received many uh, referrals from uh, Montessori uh, programs. Uh, I also served on the planning committee for Lumen uh, as we applied to the state to become a public school. And actually, I was the uh, site location committee and, uh, and located the, the property and the buildings for uh, Lumen Lindsley Park Community School. And not only that, I have a lot of good friends who are Montessori guides. Technically, I'm a psychotherapist and marriage family therapist, and I have a clinical practice in Dallas. And the last couple of years, I'm a part-time, um, uh, on the part-time staff member for Lumen. A lot of my time is spent working with Lumen Bachman Lake Community School. And that's primarily, I think, why I'm here today. I want to talk about that program. Members of the assembly uh, had a chance to visit Dallas. And, and some of you have had a chance to uh, see the program that Lynn was describing. Uh, Terry Ford had a chance to uh, present. Uh, Carol, Mary Carolyn Parker uh, had a chance to present. And Charo Alarcon in India had a chance to present. And these are fine presentations, um, and they, pr they probably are on PowerPoints. And so <laughs> you can, and well, all I mean by that is you can go to the website and go to the portal, and you can look at those presentations. And I hope you do, because there will be lots of pictures and things like that. Um, I'm, uh, in terms of the whole, uh, I'm, I'm hoping as, as we talk today, that this is going to be more like a novel than like a movie. I'm depending upon your imagination to uh, fill, in the, fill in the gaps here. Like I said, I'm really excited to be here and I want you to know that I have a kind of personal burden that I bring with me uh, to this uh, assembly. Um, I really want to do the right thing by a bunch of people in West Dallas at Bachman Lake Community School. Now, and here's what I mean by that. I've had a chance to interact, hear your presentations and interact with many of you. And the truth is, I will never think about Africa the same way. Do you understand that? I'm never going to think about India the same way. I'm never going to think about France the same way. Or Ireland. Or London. Or Canada. I won't even think about Texas the same way. And I certainly won't think about Marfa, Texas the same way. I'm never going to think about Australia the same way. Because I've had a chance to interact with you. And it changes my perspective. I also don't want you to think about Dallas the same way. That's my burden. 
because I want to represent a bunch of people that I work with, that I've worked with for a number of years, who I consider to be unsung heroes, just like you. Uh, their work is, a, is meaningful. They're motivated. They have a sense of their effectiveness. And there are sacrifices. Uh, there's an idea in physics, uh, second law of therm thermodynamics. It basically says this. If you want to go anywhere, you're going to have to leave something behind. Part of what we're going to talk about today is the fact that when we take on meaningful, challenging work, there are going to be some sacrifices. And it's important to understand what they are and maybe how to manage them. And that's part of what I do at Bachman as I help. I'm part of the staff that helps us manage the sacrifices we make to do important work. So, to start off with, just out of respect, I'm going to read some names. And I want you to know that every time I read a name, that means something to me. You all have a bunch of names, too, you know, that mean something to you. Heidi. Osiris, Melissa, Vera, Carmen, Rosa, Martha, Maria, Mary, Charo, Anna, Olga, Ruthie, Arlena, Elena, Michelle, Victor, Nancy, Tanya, Sarai, Lupe, Montserrat, Elsa, Angelica, Dulce. I wish each one of those people could be here. Uh, some of those people, it's been the privilege to get to know. We've got some people that have, uh, you know, some, some real good educational background. We've got some people that do our parent education work that are just average folks. And I remember working with one of those uh, women. She was getting ready to go to a special conference that she was chosen to go to. She'd never been on a plane before. Never stayed in a hotel before. But that's just part of the connection I have with these folks, you know, talking to them about, about these things and these big steps and these big ways that not only do they help their children and their families develop, but they're developing too. So the child and the family, I'm going to start with some more uh, quotations because I love quotations, big ideas. The idea that education must begin at birth has been a consistent theme in the preceding discussion, although the question of how has not yet been dealt with. Well, that's kind of a funny quote. It's kind of open-ended and kind of, well, but that's why I chose it. I kind of like it, you know, because she's made the big point. Education must begin at birth, but how? 
And that's what each one of us has to figure out. <laughs> We've got a, a kind of an answer for us right now at Bachman Lake. It might fit your situation. It might not. I don't know. But I want to share it with you so you can kind of see where we're coming from. Another uh, thing that Maria Montessori said was, the adult ought never to mold the child after himself, but should leave him alone and work always from the deepest comprehension of the child himself. That was part of her initial genius, was that she was, maybe as a scientist, was willing just to stand back and observe the child. And what she saw there, you know, uh, kind of almost a miracle that was beginning to happen and what she could put together from that experience. And then one more that I think really fits her and a lot of really important thinkers. Discovery consists of seeing what everybody else has seen and thinking what nobody else has thought. seeing what everybody else has seen and thinking what nobody else has thought. And when we see uh, uh, a, a really great idea, we realize that that's, that's kind of what has happened. Um, and just for you to know, I, this presentation will be posted on the website this afternoon, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, I mean, there's the presentation you prepare and then there's the presentation you give. So, uh, but the one I prepared will be uh, on the website. Um, so in her book, um, The Child in the, F in the Family, you know, Maria Montessori really argued for a universal and enlightened understanding of children's growth from infancy. She grieved and she criticized some common parent and educator attempts to try to shape the child in the way that we want to shape them. And she promoted a very new way of thinking about it, a paradigm of allowing the inner life of the child uh, to shape itself. And since then, there have been uh, many people in psychology and related disciplines who have uh, presented ample uh, empirical evidence to support many of her ideas. At Lumen, one of our greatest commitments is to support and nurture the parent-child relationship from its very earliest beginnings. That commitment flows out of two of our primary values as educators, start young and involve parents. That's what we're committed to. When we started out, starting young meant at three. And then, because that seemed pretty early compared to a lot of people, and then it's kind of, well, wait a minute, and we just stumbled upon some other things that allowed us to start even earlier. Whatever success we've had in education, I believe, can be, can be attributed to that idea. Start young, involve parents. The attachment experience and resulting parental relationship form and shape children's personalities and perspectives so profoundly that it influences all future encounters they will have within their world. These early years are so important that it will affect 
all future encounters the child will have in their world. And here's where that word respect comes in. Our respect for this primary relationship establishes the very basis for the involvement of both children and parents in our communities. There's a lot of talk about parent engagement. And DISD has actually, in the past, contracted our little school over in East Dallas to help them understand how do we get parents engaged in our, in our schools. I think it's this respect for that relationship. Uh, we all know that parents can be messy, right? And by that I just mean that a lot of teachers would just kind of just, just give me the kid. <laughs> give me the kid, let me do my thing, you know. Uh, but they're absolutely essential for us to develop a collaborative relationship. Uh, and unlike other schools, we as Montessorians, we want to include parents in this process. So, like I said, I want to uh, share all the things that we've been learning to do. When possible, we begin working with parents even before our future students are born. This is not always feasible, but many times it is. When we first started uh, East Dallas Community School, uh, you know, like any program, we struggled at first, and then we started getting some traction, and then, you know, some interest and word of mouth developed. Uh, and then before we knew it, we had 300 people on our waiting list to be in the school. And that was a great problem, but we didn't know what to do with it. And then we uh, found this program, Parents as Teachers, which was a birth to three-year-old uh, program. And so we basically encouraged these parents on the because what we'd have, and many times we'd have, we actually had uh, people register their unborn children for our school because they wanted to get in line and so we said why don't you get involved in the parents as teachers program you know let's do that as a way of kind of get, feeding them into the school system and here's what we discovered uh, once we started doing that the people that were involved in our, our uh, pregnancy through three program were much more engaged in our school they were they would, when they would get into the school, they would show up for parent-teacher meetings. They would volunteer for activities around our school. Uh, they were much more involved in what we were doing um, than the parents who weren't part of our P23 program. And so a light bulb went off. We thought, okay, um, you know, this is important. And in fact, there's kind of a, a metaphor, I think, um, in the future, I'm going to talk a little bit more about the P3 program, but in the same way that the attachment experience shapes the child's, all future relationships will be patterned in some way after those attachment experience. If we can work with a parent in pregnancy and after the birth of their child, it's going to shape all of their future relationships with school for the rest of their life. Does that make sense? 
<laughs> I mean, uh, and we're working with people who maybe from their culture, school is something that the experts do. You drop the child off. You don't even talk to a teacher because they're of different status than you. You know, they're educated. But we want them to feel absolutely like they could be engaged in school, that they're a partner, that they can advocate for their child. And so for us, we found that this was, this was a very important uh, process to, to get to the parents as early as possible. And uh, so we were delighted to see that happen because it fit all of our hopes and our values. So first thing I want to do is I want to describe the community that we serve. Uh, we've got about 200 children uh, at Bachman Lake Community School. We've got almost 600 in the total lumen. We've got two other schools, but this is the one I'm going to describe today. 200 children, 160 uh, children in our pregnancy to three-year group, and uh, about 40 in our three- to five-year group. 96% of our Bachman Lake children are economically uh, disadvantaged. 39% are living in poverty. 72% uh, of our residents uh, speak Spanish as their primary language. 76% of the children are limited English proficient. And one in 10 Bachman area residents are under the age of three. That's the highest ratio of that age in the city of Dallas. Uh, I'm just going to read a little description I wrote of our neighborhood. Bachman Lake uh, neighborhood is a densely populated area of mostly apartments and some residents uh, nestled squarely under the glide path of jets landing at Dallas Inner City Love Field Airport. Every day, or when I get out in the morning, I can count on a jet just kind of giving me a haircut as I walk into the building. And uh, I think. Uh, I think, Alan, you showed me a picture of you landing at Cape Town in the same uh, kinds of, uh, of, of the poor nestled in. You know, that's usually the kind of area near the airport is either commercial or it's uh, really low income. That's, that's true for us. Uh, the vast majority of the community residents are Hispanic. And because many of the businesses cater to Spanish-speaking uh, customers, it's become kind of a first stop for recent immigrants in Dallas. It's familiar. Now the truth is, they can experience some of the same alienation there they can experience anywhere, but they feel comfortable coming to this area of town. And we get uh, 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 newly immigrated people from Mexico and Central and South America. Uh, many of those people are undocumented. In the Dallas-Fort Worth area, about half a million people don't have documentation. And that means every one of them has a friend, a spouse. I mean, you know, that reverberates all over the, the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And they are at a severe disadvantage because of that in terms of working conditions, uh, the ability to earn wages, uh, general health issues, mental health problems, including anxiety and depression. Uh, because of our, our commitment to show and to prove that children from any economic and racial background can succeed in education, 
we committed ourselves to this uh, neighborhood in 2009. Now, what I plan to do is share some fundamental ideas and then Lumen's solution or Lumen's answer. Um, first area is just the centrality of these early years of life. And the concepts include the unconscious absorbent mind in the first plane of development. As Maria Montessori said, a whole life, the importance of the first three years. And then I've added attachment theory, and I'm going to explain why I've done that. This is a quote from Maria Montessori. The development of the child in the first three years after birth is unequaled in intensity and importance by any period that precedes or follows in the whole life of the child. If we consider the transformations, adaptions, achievements, and the conquest of the environment during the first period of life from zero to three years, it is functionally a longer period than all the following periods put together from three years unto death. For this reason, these three years may be considered as long as a whole life. That's a wonderful way of just thinking about it, isn't it? It's one of those, you know, she sees what everybody else sees and she thinks something nobody else has thought. It's a wonderful, beautiful way of thinking about it. In addition to that idea is this whole developing notion of attachment theory. And it's amazing to me to think that something, as a psychotherapist, that is something is so basic, you know, as attachment, was really uh, poorly understood and frankly controversial prior to World War III. And there were some people, uh, John Bowlby and Mary Ainsworth were people that were pioneers. Uh, and uh, John uh, actually was a member of the Psychoanalytic Society of London and was a colleague of Klein and some other really important people. But for various reasons, there was a lot of pushback and worry and concern and controversy about the, the whole point of even studying this period of development. But they persisted and won over their colleagues' uh, interest and support. And they basically have uh, pioneered concepts about this and the empirical methods for even exploring it. What is now clear is that the attachment experience not only contributes to or impedes the child's social, emotional, and cognitive development, but also significantly shapes the quality of all future relationships the child will experience. Success in the classroom and life is fundamentally influenced by this primary relationship and period of development. Now, what's Lumen's approach to this issue? Our approach at this point in time is the Parents as Teachers Home Visiting Program. Uh, I'm going to have a list of resources. This is a program that was developed in, in uh, America. Uh, and uh, so you'll, you can look all, read all about it uh, in the resources if you want to. There's a website I'll send you to. Um, we have taken this program and we've uh, modified it for Montessori purposes. And so we have uh, a collaboration with the Montessori Institute of North Texas, 
and they have uh, done training for our parent educators. And uh, we also have our own uh, certified Montessori guides that help mentor the application of this program in a Montessori way. I'm going to read a little bit from the website of Parents as Teachers. It's a home visiting program based in the United States, founded in 1984. The organization provides the model and the infrastructure training, and that's, that's one week of training. And again, we're not talking about having AMI certified Montessori teachers. We're talking about people that are practitioners that go into the field and visit uh, low income uh, and socially challenged families in their homes. Uh, and so we get one week of training and then we have our own training that we add and uh, they're ready to go. Uh, the goals are to increase parent knowledge of early childhood development, improve uh, parent practices, provide early detection of developmental needs, developmental uh, delays and health issues. We do a lot of screening. We make sure all the kids get their well baby checkups, you know, that sort of thing, including uh, we have uh, social, uh, social workers, basically, we call them family advocates, but they help even with transportation, whatever they need. We make sure that baby gets <laughs> looked at and it gets the kind of care that they need. And we also, of course, are on the lookout for abuse and neglect, and we're attempting to increase their school readiness and success. So we do all this, and we found that the program, and they understand what we're doing, uh, that we have enough leeway that we can do it in a Montessori way. So we have this 200 kids that have weekly visits for 90 minutes in the home. Um, and for most of those kids, we can go from pregnancy and birth all the way to the third birthday with weekly visits without interruption. Um, Heckman and others, even based upon the work of the Jamaican study, I don't know if y'all are familiar with the Jamaican uh, longitudinal study, but uh, that was one year, weekly visits for one hour. And it's clear that it's had profound effects for those children's lives uh, for the last 25 years. So that's part of starting early for us. Second concepts I want to mention are adverse childhood experiences and Adele mentioned some of that uh, yesterday and the idea of scarcity. These are issues that affect our uh, families and we have to have a solution to it. Uh, I'm going to go into just a little bit of background information about this thing, but basically Kaiser Permanente, Permanente is uh, one of the largest and oldest managed health care providers in the United States. And they actually uh, do a good job. You know, not one of these companies that's come in and sort of trying to find a way to cut costs and cheat the system or something. But they took their role of research seriously. And so in 1995, they began a study to look at what childhood experiences, how they may affect health in adults. And they did a two-year study with 17,000 uh, uh, individuals. And the results were so concerning that they went straight to the Center for Disease Control. 
And they basically said, we're seeing some very significant correlations between certain childhood experiences and health in adults, and even morbidity, even early death. And so it was, it was so compelling that the two of them put together a longitudinal study, uh, and that's what Adele was referring to. And there's, a, uh, there's both a, a standard, I think it's 10-question test, you know, that's the questionnaire, and now there's an international version that also includes the effects of, of, of being a refugee and uh, seeing war violence. Uh, and I'm thinking that we need to have another version even in the United States because uh, you may have heard uh, that we have a new president in the United States. And uh, I can tell you at Bachman that the repercussions and the ripples were profound from day one. I mean, we hit the ground running that next morning. I was busy till night working with utterly concerned uh, people who didn't know what this meant and were afraid of what it meant. Um, so, I do think we, we need a, an updated version even in the United States for this issue of, of what it means to not have documentation. It's very much, it's similar to, to refugee status or something like that. It, it's profoundly disturbing for these folks. So you can read more about that study, but uh, here's, here, and to review what Adele said, there were three different areas of adverse childhood experience that they looked at. Abuse. And they looked at physical abuse, emotional abuse, and sexual abuse. Neglect. They looked at physical neglect and emotional neglect. And then household dysfunction. They looked at mental illness in the household, incarcerated relative in the household, mother treated violently in the household, substance abuse, and divorce. And like Adele said, they found this sort of very uh, consistent uh, linear kind of correlation that the more of these you had, the, the more the impact was for the, for the uh, person. So that's an issue, and we felt like we needed to somehow address it. And uh, another one is this idea of scarcity. Uh, and that's, uh, I don't know if you've... This is a neat book, if you, if you like this sort of thing. It's written by a couple of world-class uh, researchers and thinkers. Uh, Sindel Melanathan and Eldar Shafir. Uh, I think you would find it very compelling if you haven't read the book. It basically is about the fact that the human brain, according to their thinking and their research, responds to scarcity in a very particular way. And maybe this is just evolution, you know, helping us out and basically saying, you know, uh, scarcity of food or scarcity of shelter or scarcity of people for humans, <laughs> any of those things can be disastrous. And so the brain starts to change immediately when it's faced with scarcity. It's called scarcity, why having too little means so much. And what's great about this book is written by a couple of pe people who are connected globally and think globally. And their thinking is 
this is, we use this as a blueprint for how to provide services to those who are facing scarcity. Does that make sense? Okay, I'm going to say a little bit more about it so you can kind of see why we think it's important. But their point is basically this. In and of itself, apart from personality and character issues, scarcity distorts and changes decision-making and cognitive processes. It captures the mind in unconscious ways. Some of these concepts are this. They, they use the word packing. Now, I just came from Dallas, Texas. I had to fly to London. I had to spend a few hours in a very hot city and then come to uh, Cape Town. And I had to think about packing, right? And I couldn't bring five bags, right? Um, and I, 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 I did bring a little bit bigger bag than I had because it's two weeks than often I have had. But a person, a poor person or a person who's facing scarcity, they've got a little bag. And they're constantly thinking, and it involves trade-off, right? Trade-off thinking. When you do packing, you have to have trade-off thinking. What can I put in the bag and what do I have to leave out? And they have to leave out some important things. That's the way the brain works. Does that make sense? Now, for the people who are well off, they have what's called slack. Oh, let's pack five bags. Well, let's pack ten bags. We'll have somebody put it on the car and put it in the plane, and I don't care how much it costs. In fact, let's just throw all sorts of stuff in there. So they have all sorts of backup plans, all sorts of extra stuff. They have more than they need. And what that means is they can even make stupid decisions and it doesn't impact them. But if a poor person makes even one stupid decision, there's a cascade of effects that occur in their life. Another idea that I have is bandwidth. And we know this from these IT folks and the computer people know that bandwidth is how much information you know, can you process and deal with at a time. And their contention is, and they have empirical basis for this, is that bandwidth is reduced when you face scarcity. They say it makes us less insightful, less forward thinking, less controlled. And the effects are large. This is a direct quote from the book. Being poor, for example, reduces a person's cognitive capacity more than one full night without sleep. And I've been one full night without sleep, and it wasn't pretty. It is not the poor, it is not that the poor have less bandwidth, essentially. That is not it, as individuals. Rather, it's that the experience of poverty reduces one's bandwidth. That's an important idea, I think. Another thing they talk about is what's called tunneling. If you're thinking, I've got to pay rent by Friday, I've got to, or I'm out on the street, you're looking down a tunnel. There's lots of important issues that you're not paying attention to. And any of them can bite you. You hear what I'm saying? Sometimes they get focused on something, and something even more important is outside of the tunnel, but they don't realize it. 
Another idea they have that I think is very important, this is the one that we use the most at Lumen, is fault tolerance. When jet aircraft were first being developed, we had a problem. We started having uh, some crashes and wrecks that we didn't understand. And what they found out was that the cockpit wasn't designed well. There were some controls next to one another that did the opposite things and they weren't well marked. And they realized, I don't care how good a pilot you have, we've got to design the cockpit to take into account the fact that people make mistakes. You know, we in the U we decided, President Kennedy decided we were going to go to the moon, and so we've been, you know, I don't know how much money we spent going to the moon. But I've heard this quote before that, uh, you know, we had 100,000 engineers with PhDs. We had every kind of scientist and all the money in the world on this. And we went to the moon with 98% human efficiency. Because we can't do 100%. Even with 100,000 engineers on the job. Much less the average person. So... And uh, so the idea of having systems that are tolerant of faults is important if we're going to design the services for people that are economically challenged. Everybody can be affected by these distortions when you're facing scarcity, but the impacts are much more profound for poor people than they are for rich people. So what's... Uh, and, and one other thing I'm going to throw in there, because I have a kind of a hobby as a psychotherapist. I collect cognitive biases. Uh, I just think they're interesting. And so cognitive biases are ways of thinking and processing information and decision-making that are sort of intrinsic, but uh, they get us into trouble. And oftentimes they're faulty, you know. And one of them is this. It's kind of... It's a big one. It's called the fundamental attribution bias. And it goes something like this. If I make a mistake, uh, I think in terms, well, I'm going to start the other way. If you make a mistake, let's do it that way. That's more interesting. If you make a mistake, some problem behavior, I attribute that to something intrinsic about you and your personality, your personhood. You know, if, if you don't turn in your homework, I think you just don't care. You're lazy. You're messy. You're disorganized. If I don't turn in my homework, my dog ate it. It has nothing to do with me. It's my circumstances. You know, we always tend to view ourselves based upon our circumstances and we tend to view other people based upon their intrinsic qualities. I think that really affects a lot about this whole fault tolerance thing. It's easy just to blame other people. So, what's Lumen's approach to dealing with uh, uh, adverse child experience and this whole issue of scarcity? Well, we have several different programs that we use to deal with adverse childhood experience. One is play therapy on campus and child-parent relationship therapy. Um, back in 1993, I was a psychotherapist in practice in Dallas, 
and Terry Ford was a new director of a new school, relatively new school at that point, and there were some people that knew of my practice and her school. And they had this idea. They loved the school. They wanted to support it. So they said, I tell you what, Stan, we want to put you and Terry together. We'll buy up one morning of your practice for the next year, every week, and we want to donate it to East Dallas Community School. That's how I met Terry Ford. I can tell you the very hour and day that I met her back in 1993. So I began involved in her school, help, mostly helping in sort of big picture morale and all sorts of stuff, you know, kind of stuff. But I was trained as a play therapist. And I started thinking about these kids. And it happened that another uh, staff member at, um, at uh, Lumen was finishing her graduate work as a play therapist. And we started having these conversations. And we started kind of doing these behind the scenes dis discussions about how we could get a, a play therapy room put together somewhere on campus, that sort of thing. Uh, and so basically we conspired and we ended up putting together a makeshift play therapy room uh, in, a, in a closet on campus at East Dallas Community School. And now we have two really nice play therapy rooms on the two campuses and we have 25 uh, play therapy sessions every week for kids who need it in our program. And so the teachers or the parents recommend that they think their child needs play therapy. And it's, it's just, it's so, it, it's totally, um, uh, integrated into the school services. There, there's no stigma. I mean, the kids are fighting on one another to get into that darn playroom. Uh, they, don't, they don't even know what it's for. You know, <laughs> I mean, they just, they, it's just a great experience. And, um, and it's a super addition. Uh, all children go through things that are challenging. And we look to see if which kids can benefit from this program. We have two licensed therapists and we have uh, uh, one a licensed intern, and that's one of the things you might think of if you, have, if you happen to have a program where there's a university by, a lot of these interns, uh, even their professors can supervise them, they're looking for a free chance to uh, exercise their play therapy skills, um, but that's an important adjunct to what's going on in the classroom for us, and it helps especially with these kids that are ex experiencing uh, adverse childhood experience. Something we've just started, and I've thought about this in terms of certain of your programs, is uh, child-parent relationship therapy. Instead of a therapist doing play therapy, this is where you train the parent to have therapeutic play with their own children. And uh, we, uh, I was lucky enough, just by sheer dumb luck, uh, you know, I was studying to be a marriage and family therapist, and somehow I figured out late in the game that, you know, families have ch kids. What do I know about kids? And so I, I ended up taking this course, child-parent relationship therapy, with a person who I didn't even know at the time was sort of a world-famous <laughs> play therapist. And... Uh, and he basically now developed the largest training center for play therapists in the world at the University of North Texas. 
And so uh, I learned to do this very early. We are making sure that all of our parent educators are certified in this process so that they, when necessary, they can show their parents how to have these therapeutic play sessions with their kids. Uh, so those are a couple of ways that we, uh, and there's more information in the presentation. You can read all about it, how to go find out more about it if it works for you. Another thing we do is we provide parent consults for parents and teachers on a regular basis. Uh, there's a pediatric psychiatrist named Jim Bennett and his wife, Sarah Bennett. She's a, a certified a clinical social worker. They've been donating their services to uh, Lumen for years. Um, what we do is uh, Carol Wolf, uh, she's our student services manager. She helps arrange these meetings. We decide upon a child of concern every month. They come in. It's a team thing. If, uh, if, uh, you know, uh, if the director or the teacher needs to be involved, if the child's in play therapy, the play therapist is there. Uh, if the parents need to be involved, we bring the parents in. But it's a super valuable uh, asset to the teacher to know that you've got some backup. You know, that there are always going to be kids that have needs that are greater than what the classroom can manage very easily. And it's just a wonderful program. I, and, I'm, and I'm emphasizing donated services and goodwill, you know, that sort of thing. If there's... Uh, uh, if you reach out to local associations of therapists, you very easily might find someone who'd be willing to donate some time to help you with your program. And finally, this, how, what do we do with this fault-tolerant systems? I'd like to say, you know, and again, what, what's interesting to me in terms of fault tolerance is how, how close it is to control of error in terms of Montessori materials. I want, I want you as Montessorians to kind of think of that. You know, it's kind of like, wait a minute, you, you, you almost can't do it wrong, right? I mean, there's a way, it's self-correcting. And so uh, we've been thinking about this in terms of how we deliver services. On the one hand, we've, we're a super empathetic, compassionate group, right? I mean, we, we just are just all heart and we're wanting to help. And yet, we knew from our Montessori background that we also, well, wait a minute, uh, you can help too much, right? And we don't want to do that. We don't want to create learned helplessness. Uh, and so we've been kind of struggling with that balance. But we think, I think, that this scarcity idea gives us some new, new things to bring to the picture to help really make it balanced and, and, and on target. Like one of the things we'll do, let's, let's just say in Texas, there's generally an interest in our legislators to cut services and make it harder to get services. Now, that sounds horrible, but that's just the truth. Um, they, the, the application form can be very confusing to somebody, and it's difficult to do. We have these family advocates who are like social workers who help parents we don't, you know, we want to teach them how to do it, right? We want to support them and scaffold them. But it can be overwhelming to a person who's, uh, who's facing scarcity. And so we have people to help them do that and even help them get to the office if they need it. Because some of these people don't have any transportation. And they're going to have to get on the bus and make three changes and they're new to the city and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so 
those are some of the ways that we're beginning to try to develop fault-tolerant systems that take into effect that scarcity changes the mind and captures it in unconscious ways and it's not their fault. It would happen to me or you given the right circumstances. It's the way the brain responds to certain situations. Okay, final list of concepts. Uh, lumen, child, family, and staff traumatic experiences. These are things that are just a part of life. And the issue of vicarious trauma. I'm going to read some stories. Uh, a parent educator was robbed at gunpoint on her way to meet families. A family advocate recently sobbed and reflected supervision because a client, a young undocumented mother from Honduras, asked, what will happen to my baby if I'm deported? The truth is no one knows. A family advocate recounted during our session that her own children, 11 and 15, had just called while visiting their grandfather in Mexico and shared tearfully that they passed the long lines of families waiting at the border in makeshift shelters of boxes and plastic tarp for their chance to enter the United States unlawfully to apply for asylum. It affected the the parent educator and it affected her children. It was hard to see that. Parent educator recounted her memories of her aunt she used to visit and stay with as a child in a rickety two-story house along a railroad in Monterey that the beast traveled by every day. You know what the beast is? It's a train that comes by every day. Uh, the whole, she remembered as a child, the whole house would shake violently, this two-story house as the beast would travel by. <laughs> Aboard it, this same train is sometimes called the death train. Dozens, sometimes hundreds, of Central American migrants risk their lives daily to head toward the U.S. border. They catch a ride on this train. And it's dangerous. Just like in American history, hobos catching a ride, sometimes you fall off. And I, I know it happens in India when people get on the, you know, sometimes they just fall off the train and they get hurt. Her, 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 uh, her grandmother kept a, a cooler full of drinks and food. And as a child, she thought it was just her grandmother's way of keeping snacks around for her. And she didn't realize until she was adult, this food was for these migrants. And they would come off, they would get off the death train or the beast, and they knew that they could get something to eat at her house. And to this day, she's elderly, she still does this. Another parent educator visited a client's residence, and an unknown man answered the door with unconvincing details about why the woman wasn't available. During this brief moment of distraction, the client, who the stranger was sexually assaulting, was able to escape to freedom and safety through the bedroom window with her infant. The young, undocumented mother had her infant taken by the child's father to give to his new girlfriend, taking him to court to get the child back with the help of one of our Bachman family advocates 
also put her in jeopardy of arrest and deportation. Luckily, she wasn't deported, and luckily she got her baby back. The parent educator who has DACA status, Deferred Action Against Childhood Arrivals, who, when hearing the fears and experiences of her parent clients, often has flashback memories of the heat, cold, bug bites, terrors, and dangers she experienced as a 14-year-old when she and her parents made their way to the United States. Her reflexive supervision is a crucial means of integrating and experiencing these emotional reactions in a pr productive way. And an old Anglo psychotherapist who hears their stories, has had their stories become a part of his own, and helps parent educators and family advocates learn how to live with these stories and experiences. And that's mostly what I want to share. Just like here, your stories have become a part of my story. And when you're a caregiver or when you're a teacher working in a difficult situation, those stories are going to be a part of your story. And it's inevitable. You can't avoid it. The question is, you know, if we're going to go someplace, we're going to have to leave something behind. The question is, in these sacrifices, how do we manage it? That's the question. Our solution with our caregivers that... And, and it's a special thing in these parent home visiting things because when you visit in the home, it's a much more intimate experience. It's not like meeting somebody in the office. You really get a feel for their family and you really get a feel for what they face every day. Um, and so it, it's, it's a very important thing. One way of thinking about human personality is that we are a story that we tell ourselves. The brain loves a narrative. There's a reason for it. Even me telling some stories, if I, I kind of know when I'm giving a talk that uh, if I tell a story, people listen. <laughs> you know, they may not listen to information, but they will listen to a story. It's because it's, it's just so... It's so deeply ingrained in us. I, I, all the stories that we've been hearing uh, about Mother Tongue and the importance of these songs and these stories that go way back, you know. Their stories inevitably, these people that face poverty and social challenges and mental health and physical health issues are faced with a particular dilemma. Their stories inevitably become a part of our story it's both enriching and meaningful to work with another person, but we've got this dilemma. What do I do with this experience? How do I manage it? We think finding a way to manage that experience is absolutely essential to sustainability. Our parent educators are a resource, and we, we, run, the, we run the danger of using them up as they sacrifice for this work. So because of this intimate experience and this particular kind of stuff, we have decided on the Lumen solution, which is reflective supervision. Every uh, parent educator that visits a home for 90 minutes, you know, I mean, actually, they, of course, they visit 10 homes a week for 90 minutes, plus prepare lessons, and, and we have a lot of, of uh, things that we have to do uh, afterwards in terms of gathering together information and processing it and 
we have socializations and all sorts of other stuff for the parents. But uh, every one of those uh, caregivers and our family advocates has to be in a reflective supervision for an hour twice a month. And I'm one of the people that they do it with. And uh, we're gonna, one, they get a chance to tell their story. And we know that that's important. We've already heard some things about how important that is. Uh, the other thing that we do is we help them frame their experience. It's not so much what happens to you that counts, it's how you frame it. How do you interpret this? Uh, we have caring, empathetic, mission-driven people, and they feel really responsible. <laughs> you know, they really do. They want to do, they're conscientious, uh, uh, open, conscientious, extroverted, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of quoting the the big five here, you know, but they really care about their work. And so part of what I do is help them put this in a framework. We have something really important to offer and we can't solve all of our clients' problems. And, and we can live with that somehow. We can integrate that. I also, uh, we also help them really think in terms of self-care. The Headington Institute is a good uh, resource, one resource, uh, for ideas about self-care when it comes to uh, trauma. And so we make, I make sure that each one of these uh, caregivers is uh, not through guilt or some other misguided way, not resting, not looking for restoration, not uh, neglecting maybe hobbies and things that are interesting, you know. We've had, we all have had, we have really important work. Each one of you is out there sacrificing. And we spent some time beating, right? It's okay. It's nothing we wouldn't want from anybody else. We want them to be able to have that kind of, you know, something that, that gives them some rest and restoration. So we really work on uh, self-care in terms of uh, making sure that our parent educators uh, uh, all these things. So I just want to convey uh, how important uh, reflective supervision is to what we do. Uh, and I guess, I don't know, I've already gotten kind of emotional already, so this may be dangerous to do this, but I'm going to read something uh, in terms of listening. Uh, because a, lot, a big part of what I do is, as a uh, reflective supervision is just I try to be the best listener I know how to be. And I don't think most people really understand the importance. I mean, the average person doesn't really understand the importance of listening. It, it seems like something that every human being does, right? It's sort of like parenting and marriage as far as that's concerned. People think, hey, we all do it. What's, what's the big deal? What, what do I need to learn about parenting or marriage, you know? I have to learn how to drive a car, but I don't have to learn how to be married. That's simple. Just sign up. You can do it. Uh, so I'm going to read a story because stories are important. Uh, it does, again, I'm just going to, oh, if you, <laughs> you want to see it. Uh, this is from a book I wrote years ago on parenting, and I, I had the insight that 
besides sharing information, I needed to share some stories to help make it. This is a picture of my father and my mother and my twin brother right here. <laughs> so, listening to dad, <clears throat> the doctors took almost three days to figure out what was wrong with my father after he was admitted to the hospital. The news was devastating. Six to eight months to live. We tried to be optimistic. After all, even the best doctors are wrong sometimes, aren't they? And in my father's case, they certainly were. He would be dead in a little more than two weeks. None of us could have possibly known he would be gone so quickly. Day after day of painful tests and treatments were hard on him. At the time, I thought they were hard on me too. Meeting my father's needs and my family's became grueling, especially while I believed that the process would stretch out for six to eight months. How could I possibly do this? Within a few weeks, I would have given anything for just one more of those grueling days. Hospital stays are hard on everyone, but I think especially on independent old men. <clears throat> they lose all the control that has given them a sense of identity and security. The tests and treatments were intrusive, and in my father's case, the biological process of dying was just plain humiliating. He became angry, incredibly rude, and at times danced around the edges of disorientation. The father I had known was fading in and out. This strong, logical, determined man started having panic attacks and would call me to the hospital in the middle of the night. Several of the staff became really tired of his sarcasm and non-compliance and he was put on report whatever that means. My father, my father was beginning to come unwound. Then one morning I entered his room and knew immediately that something had changed. The room literally felt different as I entered and, I, and then I saw my father. No, I saw dad again for the first time since he entered the hospital. He stared peacefully out in space, deep in thought, and as I sat next to him, he said, Stan, something happened to me last night. My heart leapt from my chest and settled somewhere in my throat, just like it is right now. As I waited to hear the story, I sensed was coming. Since the day I entered this hospital, I haven't felt human, more like a piece of scrap meat. I can't do anything for myself. I can't even keep myself clean. Last night, I lost control and crapped all over myself. I was so humiliated and angry. Then a nurse I had never seen before came into my room. She isn't from the United States. She and her family came from India. She was so nice to me. She wasn't mad or impatient about the mess I made. She didn't mind cleaning me up and changing my sheets. When she saw the picture of you and your brother on the dresser, she asked me about my family. She sat right there where you're sitting and listened to me as I told her about meeting your mother 
and our marriage and you and Brad, she was really interested and acted as if she had all the time in the world just to listen to me. I feel like a human again, like I have been reborn. So a nurse from India showed interest and listened to an old man, and I had my dad again for 10 more precious days. You could understand why I have such strong convictions about the importance of listening. So, working with children uh, within the family context offers Montessori community both substantial educational opportunities and inherent challenges. Montessori saw these realities clearly in her work. Though our shared humanity and our Montessori pedagogy are universal, each situation is unique, and how we proceed should be based upon keen observation and a deep understanding of the children, their families, and the communities we serve. Thanks a lot.